welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos, and I'll be your host today. Today will be a solo podcast with yours truly, and uh, the topic will be something that we haven't really spoken about in months or probably even years at this point, and uh, it's uh, not the independent watch brands or the hype watch brands like uh, like Jorn or Rolex and AP, but um the large conglomerate watch brands, the uh, the brands that are owned by the likes of LVMH and Richemont and Swatch Group, uh, the ones that have been somewhat maligned during this uh, watch boom that we've been uh, experiencing over the last few years. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting to kind of go back and visit these brands and see where uh, their true value really lies. Um, so uh, in the next, say, 30 to 45 minutes, uh, that's what we'll be discussing. Um, but first, as always, we have a customary wrist check, and today I decided to wear uh, my, I guess it's my favorite watch, and it's uh, a watch made by one of these larger brands, uh, and that's my Panerai PAM233. Um, this is a 44 millimeter 1950s stainless steel case. Uh, mine is an O serial, uh, which makes it, I believe, a 2012, uh, don't quote me on that. Um, which means that it has the AM PM indicator, not the dot dial, which were uh, which were exclusive for the to the first two um, years of uh, of their manufacturing. Um, it's still in the catalog today. I think it still is the best watch, the best Panerai that you can purchase. You're going to get the most bang for your buck. It's around a twelve thousand uh, dollar retail price, and includes a linear power reserve, which is my favorite. Uh, my favorite feature of the watch. It also has an AM PM indicator. Uh, and that is because it is a GMT. So it has an extra GMT hand, GMT hand, and it has a date. It is a, uh, what collectors like to call a, um, a sandwich dial, which means there's a large disc of, do, of, uh, loom below the actual dial. And the numerals are literally, uh, cut out of the dial to expose that loom. So there's plenty of loom, um, the watch is very wearable. It is a manual wind, 44 millimeters, so it's wears slightly thinner than the automatics because it doesn't have to have room for the uh, the winding rotor, and you don't get what uh, used to be called the Etta wobble or the Valjoux wobble. Sorry, uh, that you get from uh, a a fully wound Panerai, uh, automatic Panerai. You don't get any of that on the wrist, which some people feel is unpleasant. Um, and again, you know, it, I have about a seven inch wrist, and it and it fits. Uh, nearly perfect. Uh, I wear it with a rubber strap and I strap it down tight to the wrist. If you like to wear your watches loose on your wrist, I would not recommend really any Panerai's just because they tend to be a bit top heavy. But if you get a manual wind and uh, you do like to wear the watch a bit tight to the wrist or strap down, uh, then this watch should fit probably any any wrist, honestly. They, they do make 42 millimeters or even 40s that they just re-released. So I would uh, recommend checking them out and that'll be on our list today. So let's go ahead and get right to it, right? So, um, you know, the the watch boom that we're seeing over the last really five years, but um, but that has really heated up over the last two years, has benefited many brands in the sense of their um, demand. You know, many many brands have have benefited, but realistically, the the ones that have benefited the most are starting with Rolex, um, then Audemars Piguet. And uh, and Patek, and those are the larger brands, and then FP Jorn, um, and you know Debitune, even some of the smaller independents, uh, you know uh, 
watches from Kerry Vutalainen, watches from GP, sorry, uh, 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 Grubel Force AGF, um, uh, have all really benefited from this. And those are the watches that some of the high-end collectors with, I guess, the most cash have been chasing and have been running the prices up, right? So uh, a lot of long-term, long-time collectors and guys who have gotten into the <clears throat> to the hobby recently have, you know, have voiced their displeasure with the fact that, you know, they have to pay so much for these watches on the open market. And if you wanted to buy any of these watches realistically direct through an authorized dealer or through the boutique from the brand themselves, you, you really have no chance, right? So it's, and, and I've read many posts online of people saying, oh, the, you know, uh, these flippers or, or the, you know, the, the dealers or whoever they want to blame for running the price up have ruined the watch collecting, um, hobby and uh and there's you know they can't get any of the watches that they want and and, and while i certainly understand that and you know there's i guess there is some truth to that uh i wouldn't i wouldn't say that it's uh totally uh a genuine gripe um and and we've talked about that in other another podcast but but i do understand that there is uh there's definitely a barrier when it comes to getting into the, some of those watches, but does that mean that watch collecting has been killed by these folks and that there are no good watches to purchase for any reasonable amount of price? Well, I would have to say, no, that I think that is not the case. Um, and today we're going to talk about uh, a bunch of these brands and uh, maybe discuss why some of the brands that are owned by large conglomerates have not benefited as much from this boom, even though they have, you know, the prices have increased across the board on um, resale prices, prices, you know, that is based on demand, but, um, you know, you don't have to pay $30,000 for a steel Speedmaster, And, and we're going to kind of discuss, you know, why I think that is and, and which watches you should be looking at. Um, if you truly do enjoy buying and wearing watches and trading watches at, at somewhat of a reasonable price, and you're not, you know, one of these millionaire characters or somebody who can afford to drop you know, 30 to 50 to even $100,000 on every watch purchase. So, um, so let's first discuss, you know, what are the large brands? What are the conglomerate brands out there? And, and what, uh, what watch brands do they own um, that are worth buying? So uh, the big guys out there, well, the biggest would be Swatch Group. And the only reason why they're the largest is really because they own Omega. Um, Omega makes, you know, half a million watches a year. Um, but they also own brands like Blancpain and uh, Breguet, Glashut Original, uh, and Harry Winston. So they, they do own more than just Omega, but Omega is their, their cash cow when it comes to luxury watches. Um, and, it, and it has been for a long time. Uh, the next, I guess, largest conglomerate out there would be uh, Richemont. Richemont owns, uh, I guess, more quality watch brands. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I guess they do. They do. A Cartier does make a, roughly as many watches as Omega, but most Cartier watches, I believe, are going to be ladies' watches. So, and ladies' watches don't tend to trade, um, you know, as much and don't really factor into the overall watch market. Though Cartier has definitely benefited um, from the the watch boom there. But so Cartier is, I guess, their their largest manufacturer. They also own. Uh, Panerai, which I discussed, and I guess they're probably their second largest manufacturer, along with uh, IWC, in which they each make probably about sixty to seventy thousand watches per year. Manufacturer, they own uh, uh, Jaeger, um, Jaeger LeCoultre, or uh, or JLC for those stateside, um, making about thirty five thousand watches per year. And then you have 
uh, Vacheron, which uh, comes in right around probably 20 to 25,000 watches per year. And then Roger Dubuis and Longa each make around four to 5,000 watches per year. So they have some really quality brands in there, especially nowadays that people are, you know, people are starting to pay attention. So there is some value in those, in those brands. And then uh, lastly, uh, there's LVMH, uh, which is owned by, I guess, I don't know if he is this week or not, but one of the richest men on the planet was uh, Bernard Arnault. And uh, they own three major watch brands, which would be Zenith, Hublot, and Tag Heuer. Um, I'm not really going to be discussing Tag Heuer too much here. I mean, there are some quality pieces you can buy. Um, when I buy Tag Heuer, I tend to stick with uh, like vintage Tag Heuer pieces, and we can we can kind of add that to the discussion a bit. But um, in terms of modern watches, you're looking at Zenith and Hublot. Um, and I guess uh, I guess we can add the last. I don't know if we call them a conglomerate. They are somewhat of a new group. Um, but it's the Sowind Group, uh, which was, which has recently purchased Gerard Perigot and Ulysse uh, Narden, which are both definitely quality brands. Make some really beautiful watches, amazing references that I, that definitely belong in each in everybody's uh, collection at one time or another. And and uh, they collectively make probably less than fifty thousand watches per year. So, so yeah, those are the brands we're going to discuss, or the conglomerates, and then the brands within them. So. Um, let's start with Swatch Group, right? So Omega, um, if you're not familiar with Omega, um, they're, they're a long-storied watch brand. They, at one point, legitimately competed with Rolex for market share. Um, at this point, they are basically the Speedmaster and Seamaster company. Um, they're going to be making many different variations of the Speedmaster and the Seamaster, and those are the watches that truly trade. So if you're buying watches that you love but hope to possibly trade and evolve a collection, those are probably the collections within their brand that you want to stick with. Um, you know, they have the the Speedmaster Professional, which is the 42 millimeter manual wind. You know, they have the Moon Watch uh, with the Hesalite Crystal. They also make this watch with a um, uh, a more robust um, uh, Sapphire Crystal, uh, but you can buy that watch in almost every variation. They also make a 39 millimeter automatic version and with many different uh, dial combos and whatnot. And then you can go to a 44 millimeter uh, automatic as well. And uh, they that's the racing version uh, in stainless steel, or they make uh, a million different variants at this point in different colored uh, ceramics, which that's probably the watch that I would um, recommend, which is the originally was the dark side of the moon. And now they have all sorts of different sides of the moon. They have a they have blue ceramic, they have gray ceramic, they have uh, obviously the, the black ceramic, um, and uh, they they even mix in some rose gold, their Sedna gold, into some of their references, um, and different complications as well that you get in that in that size of watch. And, and even though it's a 44 uh, with shortened lugs and a very flat case back, um, it's almost wearable across the board for everyone. I mean, unless you have a, a, an extremely tiny wrist, but even still, like, Guys like Tim Masu, who have close to a six-inch wrist, smaller wrist, can easily wear those watches. And, you know, guys with, you know, large wrists, eight plus, are, are happy wearing that watch. So if you're looking at Omega, I would personally pick um, the Speedmaster uh, Dark Side of the Moon or one of the Moon variants um, to look at. And then on the, and those are their their chronographs. Um, then the Seamasters uh, have, I mean, they've been making Seamasters for as long as the company's been around almost. And, uh, you know, you can get the James Bond style Seamasters, which they kind of just re-released uh, with the ceramic 
wave dial, which is one I, I actually own the blue variant, but now they have a, a white with a black bezel. They have a, a the blue with the blue, which I which I own. They have the black with the black. They have many different variants. They have two tones. They have ones with a tantalum in the in the the bezel and bracelet. Um, many different variations. That's one thing with Omega that you're getting into that if you like a reference. And you can basically find any variation that'll kind of suit your needs and your and your tastes. Um, and that's what's that's what's good about Omega. You know, it's also what has kind of kicked them in the butt in the past, you know, in terms of uh, collectability and trade value, right? Uh, you know, we can separate watchmaking from trade value. There is some element of watchmaking that goes into trade value, but honestly, there's many, many brands that are that technically make just tremendous watches. Like Parmigiani is one that comes to mind. Uh but you know they make unbelievably nice watches, uh, handmade, hand, you know, very esoteric designs and and watches that, in my opinion, if I if I had control of the market, they would be you know trading at or above their retail. But they are essentially maligned on the trade market uh, for a few different reasons. Marketing is one of them. They're also don't their aesthetics don't speak to everyone. Um, but uh, but one way to kind of tank your the trade value of a watch is to release uh, a every single special edition you can think of and different with just different dial dial and uh, bezel color variations. And that's kind of what Omega has done, but they have certainly um, benefited from, you know, the boom that we're, that we're seeing, you know, the, the uh, diff, the special edition Speedmasters definitely have, you see like recently the tin tin is one that has exploded in value. Um, but the Snoopy was one before that as well. So, you know, if you're looking for a hype watch within the catalog of Omega, the Snoopy's every, every variation of the Snoopy would be one to, to chase. Um, but you know, again, if you're looking just for something that's great to wear every day that, you know, you can buy it for X dollars and wear it for a few years and then move it out of your collection and not take a hit really, uh, or take a very small hit, just, you know, any 42 millimeter, um, Speedmaster will do, uh, and most of the uh, dark side of the moons buying those at market value will retain the majority of their value. Um, you know, you'll certainly it'll certainly cost you a few bucks to wear the watch, but you know, it's not a watch where you buy it for ten and sell it for two. You know, it's a watch that you say you buy it for ten, you sell it for you know seven to eight, right? So it might cost you a few thousand dollars over a, a three to four year ownership. Um, in 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 this market. You know, maybe that's a watch that that does kind of blow up in price or go up a little bit more in value. All right, so Omega, uh, we've kind of covered that. I mean, they do make some high horology watches too. If you look at, they make some um, some special pieces. There's a center, uh, a central tourbillon that that comes to mind that you can buy at at a fraction of its retail price, and it, it is really really cool. But good luck trading a watch like that, right? Um, so another brand that's owned by the Swatch Group uh, that that's definitely worth mentioning it would be Blancpain. Um, I think Blancpain claims to make the first water resistant watch. Uh, I mean, there's many brands that say that, uh, but you know the the uh, the Fifty Fathoms is their most popular watch. They make the the Bathyscaphe, which is their newest version, um, but also the traditional Fifty Fathoms. Great watches, great dive watches. Very bulky though. Um, robust dive watches. They make those in a variation of of different metals. So you can get the the 45 millimeter um, uh, 50 fathoms with the uh, sapphire bezels uh, in steel. You can get them in titanium. You can get them in 
in rose gold. I believe they even make yellow gold and they make different dial variations that are kind of remakes of, of their original historical models. So they make like the no radiations and the mill specs, and those are collectible as well. Um, those are all watches that, you know, if you buy them at, at market price, it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg, but it's also not going to be a watch that you're, it's going to be a maker down the road. Um, but you know, easy watches to own and you can own them for four or five years and trade out of them. And, and again, you know, you'll get the majority of your money back. Um, uh, one thing about Blanc Pond is that they do make some really cool, complicated watches that over the years have not held really any value. So you can find them pre-owned that they make, you know, uh, um, split second chronographs and, uh, um, flybacks, uh, uh, what else comes to mind? Moon phases and, 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 you know, triple calendars, interesting pieces that are nice dress watches that are not going to, that are kind of on the level of Pat of Patek and in the level of, of case design finishing and the feel and the, the wrist, but you're going to still pay a fraction of that same watch with those same complications from a brand like Patek. So uh, another, you know, more watches to look at. Um, another brand that I would say is definitely worth it is Breguet. Uh, you know, they, Breguet has a storied history, right? Um, A.L. Breguet created the, the Turbillon and, and uh, you know, he's he's the idol of guys like Jorn. And, and so the brand that carries his name does make some really, really special watches. Um, they have the, uh, um, they have some really amazing watches. Obviously, Turbillons from the brand are going to be, uh, you know, great watches, not super collectible. They really don't make any watches that I would consider are very collectible in, in the sense that you can buy them and won't take a kind of a big hit. They, for whatever reason, they only make about 30,000 30, watches a year, um, but they they just tend not to hold as much value. You can get the, like, their sport chronographs, if you buy them at market value, are going to be okay. So the Type 22s, the, 20, uh, the Type 20s, the 21s, the 22s um, from every different uh, era are, are going to be watches that that you can buy pre-owned at discounts, and and when you trade them, they're still gonna you're still gonna cost you a few bucks, but it's not going to be horrendous and won't you know won't end your watch collecting, uh, or won't kill your watch collecting budget. Um, the tradition um, models are phenomenal. The skeleton uh, watch is very um, minimalist. Uh, it actually they like a very much George Daniel esque. Uh, um, designs that you're going to get from, from Breguet. Uh, the classiques also um, are going to be, you know, dress watches that are a bit robust in the feel and their wrist. They have long lugs. So they, so even though they're going to be thin watches, they do still feel like nice and robust on the wrist. Um, and then the Marines are going to be their diving models that are, uh, you know, again, not highly collectible, but great watches. If you want to buy uh, a watch from a brand that has a tremendous um, history and has watchmaking merit, then these are the, this is definitely a brand to buy, but just, you know, be wary that when you do buy it, uh, there's a chance that you're going to take, you know, more of a hit than certainly if you're buying a Rolex, but more, most brands are going to trade a little stronger than brigades across the board. Uh, you know, marketing is probably going to be the number one reason for that. You know, people outside the watch world who are just getting in don't know Breguet. It's not, he's not a, uh, he doesn't have the reputation or the brand doesn't have the reputation that it probably deserves. Um, so we'll close out uh swatch group with Glashruto original or, or original. If, you, if you're Tim also, um, they only make about 10,000 watches a year. And uh, 
Glashut does it, it, so the way we like to describe Glashuta, um, you know, it's from the same region of um, uh, it's it's a German watch brand from the same region that uh, A Long and Son is from, and uh, you're going to get a lot of the German design language, uh, very very strong uh, finishing and uh, engineering from that brand as well, and you're going to get basically, you know, what we used to describe as 85% of uh, longa at 25% of the price. And now, uh, as prices for longs have gone up, you're, you're probably closer to 20% of the price. Um, still a brand that trades at, at, at a pretty serious discount off their original retail, but you can get some tremendous complications. So if you are just looking for something amazing, that's going to be unique that you're really not going to see anyone else wearing. That is not very like uh, French Swiss, which most brands out of Switzerland are going to be made in the French region of Swiss of Switzerland. So they're going to have that kind of French design language, more of the paddock feel to it. Uh, So, uh, you know, if you want something totally different, but don't want to, can't afford say a longa, the glashute is definitely a way way to go. And similar to Breguet, you're, it'll cost you something going into it. But as long as you know that, and you know that you're paying a fair market price, then you should be okay. All right. So, uh, so Swatch Group is there and they do have some merit, right? Richemont, um, which is going to have the bulk of the of the the brands, they and uh, quite a few of their brands have actually benefited nicely from this boom. So uh, let's start with Cartier, right? Because they're their largest manufacturer. Um, again, they make about a half a million watches a year, but the majority of those are ladies' watches. So in terms of men's watches, I would say um, probably less than half of their inventory or half of their manufacturing is going to be of men's watches. So say it's say it's 150,000 men's watches per year, which is still quite a few, but in this market, you know, is not is is closer to the level of demand. Um, and when you're looking at their models, they have, you know, quite a few different model lines. They have the Ballon Blues, they have the Pashas now that they just re-released. Uh, but the most popular Cartier and they they have, I guess they don't make the Roadster anymore, but those exist uh, on the pre market. But the most popular model and what's kind of put them back on the map, especially with pop culture, is the new Santos. Um, I will say that I I am an early adopter of the Santos. When it first came out, I really liked it. Um, they thinned out the mo- uh, the uh, the case on that. The, the old Santos used to be these large, chunky, like Panerai-style watches, which seemed absurd to me. I, I didn't really love them. I, I do like the story of Cartier um, and how that watch came about, but... Um, but the Santos is uh, the new Santos that came out. I think in 2017, probably right around there, uh, has really, really spoken to collectors. Um, this has the uh, their patented quick change strap system, and also on that bracelet, it's a it's a easy link or easy removal link um, system that does not require any tools. Literally a flush um, pusher on the inside of all the removal links, which allows you to unhook the link and then reconnect it all without using tools. It's, if you haven't seen this, it's amazing. Um, those are trading at or above the retail now, probably closer to around $8,000 is what I'm seeing. Some of the the white dials and even a little bit more for the blue dial variants of the watch in stainless steel, but still uh, a tremendous value in my opinion, especially for the technology that you get. I mean, I bought the watch for probably around four or $5,000 back when, before anyone cared about it. So I got lucky there. Um, but again, I probably would spend about $8,000 for that watch right now. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a great kind of versatile watch. You can wear it to the office. You can also wear it 
out to, to dinner. And you could even probably wear it to the beach, though I would not take it in the water because it does not have a screw down crown. Uh, and those the Santos does come with a, uh, along with the bracelet, comes with uh, a leather strap and a deployant. Um, which the point's not the greatest in the, but the leather strap is beautiful and they do make them in a few different colors. And again, you don't need any tools to, uh, to swap that. So, you know, you can wear it on a leather strap to work and then put, throw the bracelet on there to go out to dinner and, and you do get a different effect. And it's like owning a few different watches, uh, when you, when you do change the straps on there. And, uh, but, um, but yeah, so Cartier is definitely, um, a brand to look at. And there are the CPC models, which are now starting to get a little bit more. Um, uh, they're getting a, a little bit more demand on those CPCs because those are the, the, um, the high horology models. I believe that, that, uh, they, they did that for like 10 years or so. They created these CPC models, which were kind of their, their, um, it was like experimental, uh, and high horology models, so more more complicated pieces. They made mono pusher chronos, and uh, I believe Jorn even made a uh, a movement for them. Um, but uh, you know, some really really cool pieces, tourbillons, and and certain calendars, and different case shapes, and things like that. So that's something to look at as well if you're looking if you wanted to look for something that's high horology that's not you know going to be a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Cartier's CPCs are great, and they those could be long term collectibles. Uh, within the brand though again most of these most of the watches that we're talking about now are not long-term collectibles they're just more value in the market and have some real horological value so after cartier i would probably look at uh jaeger um and within the richemont uh brand groups i would say uh or richemont group brands Jaeger is probably the best manufacturer in the sense that they're doing everything in-house. Um, they spend probably the most on R&D. If you ask Tim Masso, they're definitely uh, probably the most undervalued brand that exists. Um, and they and their catalog is the most wide-ranging, I would say. Whereas a lot of these brands, so for example, we'll discuss IWC and Panerai, but you know, IWC is mostly um, sport watches uh, or, or they're going to be, you know, known for pilots watches specifically, right? So they have uh, a lot of references that are going to be pilot inspired. Even their trust references tend to be kind of, uh, you know, pilot inspired watches, you know, uh, Panerai is mostly or really only going to be dive watches. Um, whereas uh, Jaeger is going to have a wide range of watches, different case shapes from the reversos to all their master collections, which are going to be, you know, so from square cases to uh, round cases, thin watches, thick watches. Um, they're going to have dress watches and different lines of sport watches. So, you know, if you're looking for, if you want to have like one brand to collect and have, you know, all sorts of different models. And Tim did this himself. You know, he picked, I think it was eight or nine references that he decided he wanted to purchase. And they were all very different watches, all within the brand. Um, and you know, that, so that's a great brand to look into and they have great history. They made, they've made movements for all sorts of, uh, of brands, including, um, Vacheron, which is another brand owned by Richemont. And I believe they even made, um, they even made movements for Patek for, uh, at one point as well. So, you know, they, they're a long storied manufacturer. They make their, they make amazing in-house movements. And again, you're going to get a wide range of collecting if you want it to stay within that brand. So it's a de definitely a brand to look at. Um, we mentioned uh, IWC, but you know, they, they do make some really cool watches. They just re-released 
their or they release their um their two most popular models, but in smaller versions, which is something collectors have been asking for for a long time. So they they release the big pilot, which used to be 46, 47, and even 48 millimeters, which was a great, beautiful looking watch, but unwearable to basically everyone except monsters gentlemen out there, people who just love wearing large watches. So they really released that in a 43 millimeter, which is, I mean, it's, it's nearly perfect. I asked for a 42 years ago. You can go look at uh, one of the trading desk YouTube shows that I did with Jason. And we asked for a 42 millimeter. They came out with a 43 and I think it's perfect. I've worn it before they even put it on a bracelet, which I don't love so much, but I respect. Um, and then they released their pilots chrono in a 41, which used to be in a 43, both Tremendous pieces are are pretty strong trading right now, but there haven't there's not enough out there for us to say these watches will trade trade uh, strong across the board and and forever. But uh, currently they are trading strong. So if you were to buy one through retail, you're not going to get killed if you decide you don't love it in a few months. Um, but they also make some you know a lot of different stra- uh, different watches like the Aqua Timer. Their diving line is is a, is a really cool um, model that that you could pick up for you know sub $5,000, almost uh, anywhere uh, pre-owned. Um, so th- there is some merit and in, in a lot of value if you wanted to get a steel sport watch from uh, from IWC. And then they have their, uh, they also have um, their Portuguese line, which is their dress line, but really it's kind of a, a larger, robust dress watch. So, and it, it is really pilot inspired. So while it is a dress watch and a lot of purists, you know, do call it a, a uh, dress watch. It is kind of a tweener. You can it, you can certainly wear that watch kind of in and out of dress um, dress situations. Um, Panerai is another brand under Richemont that is uh, definitely benefiting and somewhat from the watch boom. A lot of their references have gone up, but not the you know two or three fold, but more you know ten to fifteen percent, sometimes twenty five percent. Certain models. Um, they're new. Uh, white dials have really been a hit. Uh, the 1223 comes to mind. That's a 42 millimeter uh, submersible with a stark white dial, um, which is really a really cool piece that a lot of people love. Um, they are re-releasing a lot of their bronzos, which is kind of playing with the market a bit. Uh, and they are focusing more on on different materials. Uh, I think they ran out of re-releasing the same watches in steel over and over again. So they're working on different materials and um, but, uh, but, you know, if you buy a Panerai these days, you're not going to make money on it, but you're not going to lose a tremendous amount either. And I would say, you know, <clears throat> I used to say stay under $5,000 with the Panerai. Now I'd say probably just stay under 10. I mean, there are a few models that, that, that you can buy that are over, but for the most, for the majority of good rule. Um, and again, there are always exceptions. A good rule is, you know, spend under 10 on a Panerai and it, it shouldn't cost you an arm. Like you get, you'll get the, the majority of your money back if, and when it's time to, move out of that watch. Um, so the last three brands that I would want to kind of mention from Richemont are going to be Roger Dubuis, Vacheron, and Elongason. So Roger Dubuis is a brand that people are not really too excited about for their modern watches, but we're seeing a lot of, a lot of demand around their early, around his early models, right? Back when he was kind of the first Jorn type character, when he was, he left Patek and decided to make watches that he really loved himself and made some really amazing esoteric pieces with amazing level of finishing well above that of that he did himself at paddock and and complications that were just tremendous right you know uh, retrograde this and perpetual calendar chronos things like that 
So that's, that's what to look out for. I'd say be careful buying a modern Roger Dupuy just in general. They tend to just be very slow movers. So even if you buy them at kind of a market price, it's going to cost you a bit more than you'd probably feel comfortable with selling out of it. Um, Longa and Vacheron, uh, besides Cartier, have really benefited from this boom more than any any other brands. Uh, Longa, it has seen has been seen to be like a a, a tremendous value when it comes to um, you know uh, traditional watchmaking. You know they are uncompromising in their uh, in their level of finishing. You know basically their base level finishing is kind of uh, well, it's really above most paddocks, and that's what a lot of people like to compare them to. And and you know, maybe five years ago, if you were looking at a paddock, I would, uh, I would say, hey, you know, m- maybe look at the same complication from Longa, and you're going to pay maybe maybe about half. Now you're paying almost on par, you know, maybe about ten or fifteen percent below most of the most of the paddocks of the same complication. You're going to get a very different aesthetic. It's going to be a German Swiss aesthetic. So, or sorry, just a German aesthetic, not a Swiss because they are made in Germany. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a, a tremendous watch brand that is on the rise. And we do believe that it is a, f- these, a lot of their references are future collectibles. We're already seeing an uptick in the value in, uh, in their kind of core models. So, uh, you know, looking at data graphs and site works have gone up tremendously over the last few years, but there are still plenty of references that you can buy for, you know, well below the retail price and watches. But now because of the the uptick in demand, when you go to sell them, a lot of dealers who had never bought one before because they just didn't even know what they were are happy to buy them, which makes them more liquid. So you're going to get, again, the majority of your money back. So I'd say Vacheron is definitely the brand that has benefited the most from this boom. Um, You know, we're looking at overseas, which, you know, Vacheron used to be part of the Holy Trinity it used to be AP Paddock and Vacheron. And Vacheron, probably in 2013, 2014, they fell completely out of favor. Um, people compared them to Paddocks and laughed. Uh, but, you know, now people are looking at these watches. When when a Nautilus is a, you know, $100,000 plus watch, you can get a uh, an overseas, which is much more robust. It has much... Uh, much more thoughtful design elements and uh, you know way more features for a fraction of the value, even at their market price right now. So Vacheron is, is amazing, but even going into their dress watches, their patrimonial lines, getting into some of these, you know, perpetual counter chronos and their, or they're just manual wine chronos, you're going to pay a fraction of what you're going to pay for that same watch and paddock. And those are absolutely on the same level in terms of uh, level of finishing and design. So Vacheron is definitely still a brand to to go after if you, you know, it's becoming a hypey brand um, and it might be the one, the first brand to really become a true hype brand that's owned by one of these large conglomerates, uh, but uh, there still is value there. All right. And the last uh, conglomerate we'll discuss will be LVMH. Um, so they own Zenith, Tag and Hublot uh, and a few other brands, but those are really the real, um, you know, relevant brands that they own. Hublot has quietly increased their uh, their horological value over the last, say, five years, but nobody's talking about it, right? So, like, they used to have Salida movements in their Big Bangs and would just re-release the same exact watch with a different color dial or different 
um, material in their case over and over again, and they seem to be wildly overpriced. So, you know, a steel watch for $20,000, that probably cost them $1,500 to make and would trade for 5,000 bucks, right? Like it was just, it was, became almost a joke for years, but um, quietly they, they really focus on their watchmaking and uh, they have created some really nice movements. Now their Unico movements are truly, you know, uh, uh, worthy of purchase and they're definitely cost more to make than they used to. Um, I, I personally like their, their Unico big bangs. Um, I think that they are, their design elements and their movements are, are worth, you know, kind of what market price is now, maybe still a little bit overpriced in terms of their uh, retails, but you know, again, they're, they're not, they're not trying to be a value and they never really were. Um, but there, there is a lot of, you can get a, a, if you buy a stainless steel and ceramic big bang these days, it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg to get out of it. You know, almost every dealer will put money into those watches because they are tradable. So if you're, if you liked Hublot and you thought it was a guilty pleasure, but you were kind of afraid because you thought, oh man, you're going to get your ass kicked when you go to sell it, eh, not so much anymore. So just make sure that you're paying market price. And I'd say that it's, it's safe. The water, <laughs> the water is warm and ready to dive into in terms of the Hublot. Uh, brand um, Zenith is uh, is a brand that has always been kind of revered by watch collectors. You know they 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 manufactured movements for uh, for many many brands, including Rolex, right? The 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 Zenith Daytona, um, which has now become extremely collectible. Uh, but you know they they've tried to pivot in the last say four or five years from a manufacturer and kind of a watch nerd's watch to more of a lifestyle brand, so more of the Hublot feel. Um, but still keeping that uh, that original, um, you know, horological value. And I think they're, they're doing a good job. Um, I mean, are they chasing hype? Well, I'll let you be the, the judge, but, you know, their last two kind of big releases were the uh, the Chronosport, which has been dubbed by many collectors as the Zaytona, right? Uh, but basically a, a ceramic bezel uh, steel chronograph with a white or black Dial, which suspiciously looks a lot like ceramic, you know, the the most popular watch that's made by Rolex, the the ceramic Daytona, and then now they just released uh, a new Defi, Defi. They call it the Skyline, but it looks suspiciously like the most popular model from Audemars. I mean, you know, they they do claim some history because it is a, uh, a it's a model that I guess was the Defy was an, originally a model uh, going back to their early history. But, you know, to release that, wa- that watch now with that octagonal bezel, I think it has 12 sides or something. Um, but either way, if you just look at it in a vacuum, the watch is nice. Um, their price points are far below their competitors. Um, and there is uh, horological value in their movements. They're going to be nice and great. And, you know, my, my buddy and partner, uh, Jason Main, does own a uh, uh, one of the Defies. And it's funny what they've done with their brand because they, the Defy, the Defy Extreme was basically a, a watch that almost tanked their brand totally in the in the 90s. I mean, it was the biggest dog of dogs. In fact, those models, we, as watch, Watchbox buys almost any watch you can pitch at us, we will not buy those Defy Extremes, those early ones. Um, but the new Defy, they basically completely turn their brand around with their worst model, which I, I think is admirable. Um, and they, they've really made some amazing watches there. Uh, the Defy 21 is an amazing watch. It feels great on the wrist. It looks cool. It's a conversation piece and does have value and, and it's easily tradable these days too. 
So uh, Zenith and Ublo really have um, kind of upped their game quietly and, and become tradable. And it, a lot of it had to do with the increased demand across the board. But um, but it did they did make changes. So um, when we talk about these brands, you know, we think to ourselves, all right, why? Why are these why are these watches trading below their retail? But also, why are they more tradable than they were, you know, just five years ago? Um, and I'd say that uh, there's a few different factors here, right? So it's an all boats rise scenario, I think, when it comes to um, the amount of new watch buyers that have entered this market, right? I think I've said it before, there's probably five times as many collectors or or people willing to to spend, say, 5000 plus on a watch than there were just five years ago, right? So I'd say that the uh, the market has quintupled in size and, and is growing every day. There's still new buyers coming into this market, right? Um, so, so whereas these brands greatly overproduce and had to close out their models at the end of each year, which means if you're not familiar with it, what a closeout is, that is, that means that, you know, in the, in the clothing market, they do it a lot and they even have stores that only really sell closeouts. And it's like the Marshalls and the TJ Maxx's of the world and the Nordstrom racks are, <clears throat> these are, uh, com- these are companies that specifically buy closeouts from popular brands and sell them at discounts in their store. Well, the watch market, did the, the watch brands did the same thing. And these, these groups were the biggest offenders. Um, they would, at the end of each year, they would sell off, you know, say 10, 20, 30% of their inventory as closeouts to either the gray market or their dealers. And they would sell them at pennies on the dollar. So those watches would be available for sometimes less than it cost to manufacture. And that was just to, to, you know, close out a year, get a little bump in their, in, uh, in their cash flow and make room for, for more inventory. And that, what that would do is it would tank the resale market because places like Joma shop and authentic watches, um, would have these watches and sell them, call them brand new, which I guess in some sense they would be, but you know, we all know a new watch is really a watch that went from the manufacturer in Switzerland to maybe either a boutique or an authorized dealer and then to your hands, right? So you're the first true owner, whereas a closeout really made it to a middleman, which now makes these watches pre-owned, even though they weren't worn, but they would be listed online, um, for, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80% of their original retail. And people would be scratching their head. They'd be like, well, what the hell, man? I bought this. I even, I got a 20% discount from my dealer, but then now this watch is listed for 40% off brand new from one of these characters. So like it would sour you on the brand. It would kill the resale value of the watch and it would just make it make the overall buying experience tough. But um, nowadays you really don't see that as much. I mean, the Joma shop and the authentic watches of the world had to pivot and really go towards more pre-owned, true pre-owned than because these closeouts have, have dried up, which is good for everybody, honestly. Um, so it made the watches more tradable, which made, you know, maybe you don't buy these watches to sell, but it, it's never a good feeling to know that the watch is worth 20% of what you paid, that 80% of the money that you spent on this watch has just been thrown out the window. And no matter how much you like watches, that's a hard feeling to overcome. So now that basically has gone out the window, which has made all these brands, um, you know, much more tradable, but they're still selling at their discounts because you see the, the level of manufacturing they're having, right? So, you know, Rolex makes, they say a million watches a year, but Rolex is, is kind of, you know, in and of itself, a, a, it's a whole world, right? Everybody knows what a Rolex is. Little kids, excuse me, little kids know what a Rolex is. So there's enough, there's well, well of enough demand to sell all a million watches. Plus they could probably sell 5 million watches a year, all at list at this point. So, uh, 
but you know, Blanc Pond, who the hell knows what a Blanc Pond is? You know, how, how many years of collecting do you have to go through in order to feel comfortable to spend thousands of dollars on a Blanc Pond? So, so even though they only make 20,000 watches a year, there still is going to be that barrier to entry and that's going to be the marketing, marketing that goes into it. So, um, you know, there's, there, their watches have as much or not more merit than a Rolex, uh, but you know, they're, you're going to be able to get these watches at a nice discount. So, um, you know, is there still value in collecting? Well, you know, buying a Daytona for $50,000? No, a steel Daytona for $50,000, that's it's not a lot of value in that. You know, and if you just have to have the watch and you don't want to wait and you have the money and it doesn't, doesn't hurt you to spend that money, then go for it. But, you know, should you spend $10,000 on a, on a Zenith chronograph or less or $5,000 on a Zenith chronograph or spend, you know, $15,000 for a Glashuta, um, you know, a, a white gold Glashuta chronograph or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that there's much more horological value and value for dollars in, in those watches. And now they're, they're certainly tradable. Um, all right. And then the last one that, that we mentioned earlier, uh, that we'll talk about before we kind of end this is, is the, the GP and UN group. And they're kind of interesting. So GP re-released the Laureato and did similar, something similar uh, with the Laureato that uh, Zenith did with the Defy. The Laureato is a, you know, it's a Royal Oak ish looking watch. It has provenance, right? Like it's not a a direct copy, but it's a similar look to the Royal Oak. Um, So it's benefiting from some of that, but they're, their movements are tremendous. They make movements for other watch brands. The Laureato has been uh, redesigned and re-released, and it's it's a tremendous watch. Um, actually, my buddy Jason owns one of those as well. So, um, and now, you know, is it part of a conglomerate? I guess it is, uh, being part of this two-brand company. Um, but I guess it's more, it's closer to a uh, to an independent than it is now uh, a conglomerate. But there's definitely value in going into Gerard Perigo. And I'd say that if you haven't ever heard of the brand or if you haven't looked at them, it's definitely worth looking at uh, G-I-R-A-R-D, Gerard. Gerard Perigo is is definitely a brand to look at. They make tremendous complications. They've been around for a long time. They've been maligned for way too long. Um, and then the last one is UN. UN's an interesting brand. They make The Freak, which is kind of, it was like a mainstream uh, MBNF or mainstream Grubel Force before these brands kind of made it mainstream these days and tremendous value when, when he into watchmaking, they were uh, a very courageous watch brand. So, you know, with the, with increased demand, I feel like brands can take some real serious um, leaps uh, and, and uh, take some really, really, really serious risks because the margin for error is so wide now, right? In the past, when, when demand was so low where like you wouldn't even be able to, you would only be able to sell 50% of your watches through retail anyways, um, or, or less, you know, the margin for error was so slim that if you made a watch, uh, you came out with a watch that didn't sell or, or nobody liked, or was a flop, you could kill your brand. Nowadays, there's so much demand that these brands can really take some, um, take some risks. And I'm hoping to see more and more of that from these brands specifically, because when they're backed by so much money, uh, that they should really be able to take the most risk as opposed to some of these independents that are taking more risk. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a weird scenario that the, that the larger brands with the more money are taking less risk than the smaller brands that are kind of on a shoestring 
budget, but you know, the entrepreneurs tend to take more risks because the risk to reward is so high for a, for a small company or, or a small brand, right? And just in general. Um, but you know, if anybody from a, one of these large conglomerates listening, I'm like, please take risks. It's going to pay off. And, and you have the margin for error is so much larger now that, that even if you do make something that is kind of a flop, um, you know, you're going to be okay. Uh, but so UN was taking these risks well before a lot of these brands did, you know, that you can get tremendous watchmaking, great history, some really cool complications and watches that are, that are very much UN, right there. They don't make watches that look like, or feel like any other brand realistically. So, um, you know, Ulysse Narden is another brand that if you're thinking about, Hey, you know, where can I find value Buy something that's a little bit different than everyone else, but not get my ass kicked when I go to sell UN and GP are definitely watches to look at. All right, guys. Well, um, sorry for, if, if I sound a little extra nasally, it's because I'm getting over a sinus infection. I apologize. I had to cancel a recording of a podcast earlier this week with my friend, David Brailsford, um, who is the owner of Garrick watches. We're rescheduling. Hopefully I'll, I'll be able to, to get him on the podcast in the next week or so, but I have some really cool guests lined up. Um, I have the, the, the founder and CEO of, um, Fears watches out of the UK. So we'll have a UK heavy few weeks. Um, you know, if you haven't looked into, um, George Daniels as a watchmaker, you know, this is the father of independent watchmaking a, a, a modern independent watchmaking. I'd say look into him. Um, he's an amazing character. He can kind of put some really cool perspective on the watch world in general. Um, but, uh, it, it and it really shows that British watchmaking has some tremendous, tremendous um, value and, and heritage. So guys like Roger Smith, um, who are, who you know took over, who was the only apprentice to George Daniels, but you know Garrick watch brands that Garrick watches, uh, or Garrick England that is that is uh, based out of Norfolk, England, is is a tremendous brand who's kind of carrying that torch. Fears is also a brand, so I'll be doing some interviews with those guys upcoming. Um, I have a few more show ideas and I'm looking for more guests. So if you're interested in getting on the, on the, um, on the show and you think you have some value to add and, and have an interesting take on the watch world or something to add, or, or, you know, maybe disagree with me on things and, and want to kind of change my mind, please, I'm open to it. Um, I record usually Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So if you're free, reach out to me on Instagram at Mr. Thanos, M-R-T-H-A-N-O-S. You can reach out to me by email, uh, jthanos at thewatchbox.com shoot me an email that way. Um, if you want to get on and, uh, otherwise if you're listening now, 50 minutes in, uh, you're a champion. I love you. We love you. Watchbox appreciates that. Um, you know, check out our YouTube channel, Watchbox studios, check out Tim's channel, Watchbox reviews. Um, Tim, Tim's, uh, podcast, which is in my opinion, infinitely better than mine. Um, he has amazing interviews with uh, very interesting characters that go super in depth and you have to listen to each of them two or three times just to get all the information that he provides. So check out all that stuff. If you're interested in buying a new, a new watch, go to our website. We have the largest inventory out of anybody on the planet. We're buying more every day. We're buying almost like a hundred watches a day. It's crazy. So even if it's not posted, reach out and ask us. We most likely have it in the pipeline coming. So check us out. If you want to buy a watch, if you want to sell a watch, we'll buy it. We'll pay as well. Um, but uh, otherwise, thank you for listening and uh, see you next week. Thanks, guys. Adios. Bye.